0: So uh, great to be with you again this morning. Uh, uh, fun to come down. It's always nice to go someplace new, talk to people I haven't met. Uh, you know, it's always, you know, I don't know often people get to other places, but it's always thrilling, isn't it, to go uh, even on a missions trip where you, you know, you worship, you spend time with other Christians, realize, wow, we're all over the place. Like we're all over the planet, you know, right? It's one of the most encouraging things to Go like at this moment right now. In many places, hundreds and thousands of places, there are people studying, worshiping, and uh, thinking through uh, things, right? It's it's just always encouraging, but we don't never meet most of those people. But uh, I got a chance to come down, meet all you folks, which is uh, uh, very, very exciting and very cool for me. Um, So we're doing this little two-week section on uh, things based on uh, on a book I introduced uh, before the questions all teenagers are asking from... uh, this book called Three Big Questions that Change Every Teenager from Fuller Seminary Youth Ministry Institute uh, and what they've been studying down there. Uh, just a quick little revert, review. Last week we were talking about how their three questions were. The one of uh, who am I that students in all the research just show such a consistent question about who am I? You know, trying to figure out where, what, what am I about? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in my world? Um, and is that, is that a church or not? You know because sadly it's often sometimes not and that's a, a sad thing uh, what difference can I make what's my purpose in this world why am I here uh, what am I supposed to do you know something that all three of those questions are ones we all ask but they're particularly heightened at the time of adolescence right uh, in, in, in their research especially what they what they find um, so um, This, I brought this question up, came out of the book that I thought was so interesting where they they kept hearing students say this kind of thing. Well, adults please stop giving me answers to questions I'm not asking? And we're good at that, right? We're good at giving answers because we start hearing a question and we're like, we already have the answer. Now, we don't just do that with teenagers, right? We do that with uh, other people in our lives too. We're formulating our response before we hear the rest of the question. But but we often kind of think we know where you're going with this, so um, I'm going to go ahead and answer this. uh, But... Teenagers want to have us hear what questions they really are asking, not ones we think they are asking, right? So really important to um, listen carefully, which we'll get to in a little bit. So maybe today uh, I titled The Answers the Church Needs to Be Giving, but it might be better to have just said how adults might respond. You know, how do we respond um, to uh, questions teenagers have? Now, I thought it was kind of interesting. I mentioned in passing, I, I can't remember which, if I met, mentioned this book at all the earlier or the later session, but um, it was so interesting to me as I cleaned up my office last year and moved my books home. I I have, you know, there are certain books you go, I'm never going to read that book again, and it goes out the door for recycling. But um, some books are like you hang on to. So this is probably the first youth ministry book I ever read when I was a seminary student in probably 1978 at Bethel Seminary in Minnesota. We had a youth ministry class, kind of a new thing back then. And uh, Merton Strauman from a research institute in Minnesota uh, had written this book, Five Cries of Youth. I find it so interesting to think, go back almost 50 years, right? To think like, this is what they found studying church youth um, back in the uh, early 70s, that they said these were the five things that came out to kids back then, right? So something's different and something's the same or a little bit of overlap, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, the, one of the, uh, the five cries was loneliness, self-hatred, which I think probably is why that whole self-esteem movement developed right we got and then we kind of got crazy with the self-esteem movement and we got to where we're like now everybody gets the participation trophy right like that's a (laughs) taking that to other extreme i think right we we got so far with that sort of thing but we addressed it in many ways family trouble psychological orphans they called it um, uh, stress at home conflict divorce Problems with family, right being I mean, was such a central idea, um, outrage, social protest, interesting though that even in the time of the '70s as they studied, this one kept going down and i thought that 's interesting because the '60s was the time of such social protests, right, and by the time I went to college in seventy two that had already waned some. The college campuses, there wasn't big protests and sit-ins and stuff, right? Things were already kind of changing. The research showed that. But still, even by 1977, they were, kids were still, you know, really con- concerned about social issues and that the church didn't address a lot of those things, right? So, uh, good thing to be thinking about for us. Uh, closed minds, uh, prejudice, you know, adults not being open to uh, um, other kinds of people. Different issues back then than now, in many ways. Coming different kinds of people and issues, but a similar overriding theme there, isn't it? That's kind of intriguing to me. Uh, and then they had the cry of joy because they said they were finding the students actually a substantial number of students were finding these are church youth they studied were finding joy uh, in their identity in Christ and in their church, right? So that's kind of encouraging, right? I don't know that like that was it was all just negatives. It was there was a positive they found to be uh, this great thing of joy coming. But I just thought that was so interesting, and I was thinking back how. People who were teenagers back then, you know, how old are they now? Well, they're probably not boomers, end of boomers. They're more of the uh, Gen X. Like you? About, about what? 48. 48. In your case, 38. Let's make sure we, uh, yeah, let's... Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, interesting, though, right? Because they grew up in the And they parents, right? So they got other issues going on with what those five cries of their youth might be today, but uh, very interesting to think how different is that generation as they grew up and have uh, their own uh, children to to try and figure out and and, uh, understand. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. So how do we respond to today's questions with with students? Um, So this this seems like one of those kind of duh, you know, of course, there's a listen effectively, but it never hurts for us to talk about listening better. Uh, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, a little joke about my, my wife and uh, audio this morning, but I, actually one of the things I've had to learn over 40-some years of marriage is to stop answering what I think my wife is saying. Now, None of the other guys had that problem, I'm sure, they were married, but um, I had that, I've had that problem a lot. I've had to be very conscientious to go, don't finish her sentence, because when I do, she gets really angry. She goes, that's not what I was going to say. Now, about half the time, it really is what she was going to say, but she won't admit it. But I've had to learn how to be careful to go, stop answering. Just try and listen, because it's not my natural bent. And when it comes to teenagers, we tend sometimes, when we, we hear their questions, we start emotionally responding negatively, so we're not going to hear them because we're already kind of frustrated by what they're asking. But we've got to learn how to listen effectively, right? So answer tough questions uh, with questions. And of course, we get this from Jesus. Um, I know all of you have heard many sermons about, this, about the questions Jesus asked, right? Because those are great sermon series. Because Jesus asked more questions than were asked of him in the Gospels, right? And, and not unusual for for Jesus to get a question to trap him. And then he does what? He has a question back, right? So, you know, they ask him, where do you get the authority to do these things? And he says, where did John's baptism come from? And, and, you know, the Pharisees are like, what? 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 Well, that was back in their lap, right, to respond. Um, but it gets them talking, it gets them thinking and trying to respond, like trying to figure out what, where his authority come from. Where did John's authority come from to do the baptism, right? So, um, you know, good to sometimes follow up questions with more questions, right? Um, can you tell me more about that? You know, so rather than just respond, and it was some student or some a kid of ours says something and asks us a question, we instead of just responding, we would say, you know, well, tell me more. Where are you going with this? Like, well, how does that make you feel? Not how do you what do you think about it, but how do you feel about it? You know, how do you feel about these things, and why? Uh, and why does that bother you so much? You know, so it's just probing a little more, right, with questions back to questions so rather than give advice ask questions like you know how does it make you feel what's it like being a teenager today you know do we ever ask them that like what's it like uh kids of your church here what's it like that i mean it's good to ask them what's it like to be a a christian teenager at your school uh how how does that feel or not even to make assumptions that they're a christian because you might be asking a question of a kid who's not sure about their faith right so it might be good to just say um you know what's it what's it like um What does our church do that makes you feel like you belong? Because we talked a lot about belonging last week, right? So um, what is our church doing right? And then also, what's our church uh, doing wrong? I thought that was an interesting question they had in the book for for students. They asked them, what do you wish Christians would apologize for? Boy, that's a hard one for me to hear a teenager give an answer. Because talk about, I would get defensive so fast. It was like, I can explain to you why Christians took that response. There's reasons for it. There's a lot of reasons why we, why the church did. But you're listening, right? You're listening. So what do you wish Christians would apologize for? So why are you saying that? Follow up, you know, questions, questions, more questions. Uh, Good thing to do rather than advice. Uh, Showing empathy. Of course, empathy uh, and not fake empathy, because it's one thing to fake empathy, like we care. But to really care. And, I, and I, in a church, this is generally not a hard thing to want people to do, right? Because I, don't, I know people in churches that really want to care about teenagers. I don't know people in the church. They might get irritated with teenagers, how they sound, what they do, or music, whatever it might be. But by and large, people in churches, they care about kids. I, I was doing this little series for a men's uh, Bible study a year ago at a church near, uh, uh, in Wayne, uh, near my campus. And mainly, uh, guy, uh, older guys, seven o'clock in the morning, Bible studies, by the way. That's what older guys have, Bible study, right? No one young comes. They can't get anybody young to come. And I go, it's, it's seven o'clock. So, uh, you know, if you had it at like nine o'clock, but it's like, well, they gotta go to work, right? The young guys too. But, the, but these older guys, they range in it generally from about 70 to about 90-some. And I thought, I decided I'm going to do, because I've been doing it, I'm going to kick off their, their year in September for 14 years now, starting out the little Bible study, and it rotates around to different leaders. A lot of my kind of genius theology uh, colleagues will, will speak, who are really, you know, really knowledgeable about different biblical subjects. But I was trying to kick off with something fun. So last year I did this, uh, three questions with teenagers, and the guys were total into it. And I realized that it's because they cared so much about the teenagers of the church and they didn't know what to do and they care that much about their grandkids and i thought okay so i got my i mentioned my grandkids i got four grandkids all younger um as they get older i'm in that same place i, I care about you know i'm watching them and thinking like i want the best for my grandkids what's it going to be as they get older what's our relationship going to be What's the culture? What's our world gonna be like for them? I mean, I worry about all those things too, right? So, um, this is something in a church. We don't we don't worry about empathy, but we don't always do it very well. You know, now in a big church, you have a lot of teenagers here. There's probably hundreds of teenagers here, isn't there? Probably. By the time you add up, you looked at the if the roster. My guess is it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big group, right? So, um, and you probably know some of them. and You've seen some of them. do Some of you live with them, so you know it pretty well. I hope you know their names if they're your own children. I hope that kind of thing you're not struggling with. What's your name again? Oh, I named you that, didn't I? Yeah, it's not good. Um, you know, do you know students' names? It's such a big thing. And then remembering the names. When I, when I, was, when I first started my church, I was a young junior high full-time youth pastor. An unusual thing back in 1981, by the way. Part of why I took the job is like, what, full-time junior high pastor? Like, I'd never heard of such a thing. So I had this big youth group. It was great. So I, every Sunday, you know, kids coming in the room. I'm trying to meet kids. I went up to this one girl, and I said, I don't think we met. What's your name? And she looked at me, and she said, uh, Lori, for the fifth time. <laughs> I never forgot Lori's name after that. And Lori Hatton and I, still on Facebook, have that joke once in a while, because she'll write me something. And I'll say, I'm sorry. I don't think have we met. Because it became a joke as, we, as she got to be an adult, right? But well, not a joke when she was, like, seventh, eighth grade. Very angry because I didn't remember her name. It's like, wow, name. It's such a simple thing. But, you know, ask kids names, get who they are. And sometimes kids have nicknames that are like a, a little shocking, right? Sometimes kids will come up with a nickname. And they're like, wow. Well, but you just listen, right? You just, that's what they want to be called. You call them whatever that name is, right? So learning the names. Have you asked what matters to them? You know, going back to like those earlier questions again. Well, what do kids care about? What do kids in this church care about? Have you asked students what they do, uh, where they live? A lot of them you probably know where they live, but uh, you know everybody has a little different communities. Some are from farther away. Big church like this usually has people driving in from different places, right? It's not a community church where everybody lives near the church. Uh, Probably from all kinds of areas around uh, two states. Probably, Um, you know, what what do they care about? What do they care about, right? These are these are all questions to be asking kids. Now, watch out for obstacles. This comes right out of. the Three Questions book. I said, watch out for the obstacles that get in the way when I was your age. The older I get, that is so easy because something seems so similar or don't seem as hard as it was when I was their age. Because I think back, like growing up in the 60s, the 70s, I've done it with my own kids sometimes. We talk about tension in America and I go, your mom and I lived through the 60s. There's a couple of years in the late 60s, as a teenager, you wonder, we wondered if the country was going to fall apart between, between uh, Vietnam War, racial issues, assassinations. I mean, tense, right? Tense, tense. Oh, we made it through that, right? But it's tempting to go, well, when I was your age, it was a lot worse. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But that's that's the obstacle, when I was your age, because... They say this in the book. We may have been teenagers once, but we've never been their age. Because it's different. So it's always a struggle. You know. The, um, when, when they did five cries of youth, the, the, the third leading cause of death in teenagers was suicide in the 70s. And guess what now? It's second. Sadly, it's moved up. Right? And so we think, well, why is that, you know? Uh, And, and of course, you know, there's there's so many different reasons about all these things, but including, of course, you know, we're three years now uh, past the start of the pandemic, and we know all the impact on kids and coping and, uh, you know, just there's so many things. It's like, uh, I never lived that when I was their age. I didn't have to live through that. We had different issues. But um, we've never been their age. So, you know, try and get past that whole idea of, like, I was your age, when, so I understand. You know, you got problems with relationships, or your family, your friends, or something. It's like, uh, no, don't, don't make, don't make. It's an obstacle. Don't let it get in the way. Um, the opposite extreme of this is to say you're so different than me. I, I don't know how to respond. Like you're so different. It's like well, that's going too far in the other direction, right? We sometimes assume we're so different we can't possibly understand them. I don't even know. I don't even know what to think on what you're telling me because it's just so far away from my life, right? So you gotta find a balance maybe in the middle on those a little bit. Or uh, this one, Uh, what you need to do. (laughs) Now, anybody here run and own a small business for many years, small business people? I ran a small business for eight years doing youth events. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Way harder than being a college professor. Now, I have colleagues that say, well, that's because maybe you weren't that good a college professor, right? So, you know, maybe. Uh, but way, and, and still harder than being a junior high youth pastor. I learned in those eight years running a business wow, kills you. Three o'clock in the morning, payroll, even for a small company, stress, unreal. Boy, very, very, very tough. And I found out in the 90s when I was doing this, people would say to me, who are business people sometimes. You know what you need to do? My my best friend in life retired as the vice president and treasurer of General Mills. He knows business. But Dave does not know small business. So he could never understand what I would say. He would say, How could you be so far in red ink? You know, I go, Well, I don't know. How could you be so much in, in have so much money at General Mills you could buy Pillsbury to get rid of money? I don't get it. I, You know, it was so hard to go. You don't understand unless you ran a small business. I've met people over the years who ran small business and they go, oh, yeah, I get it. You know, pe- people say, I mean, I don't want to get off too far on small business stuff. But you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, um, teenagers don't need us to say, here's what you need to do. So that's not a listening approach, right? That's, that's advice. Uh, another obstacle, the opposite extreme of that one. This is totally under your, under your control. You got this. That's, that sounds kind of good. sounds empowering, but actually it might make a team feel like they're to blame for a situation uh, and not very hopeful about the future because they think, I, I can't deal with whatever this thing's going on. So, you know, we don't want to dissociate ourselves from it either. We don't, we don't want to say, uh, you know, give them bad advice or, or advice that we think is helpful, but we also don't want to say, this is you got this. You can do this. You can handle this. They might be able to. But we've got to find something to get in the middle. We, we practice empathy when we put care into action. So it's one thing to care, but of course care involves doing something, right? So what do you do when you're a, an adult at a church and, uh, and you've got teenagers that you want to care about but you're not necessarily a volunteer. And some of you might do some volunteer work uh, with Matthew or with others in a church, children, other ministries. You're probably many of you do things like that. A lot of people are like, uh, like even me as a former youth minister at, at uh, almost 69 here in a few weeks. Uh, I don't connect as well as I used to with teenagers you know, it's, I don't, my, our, youth, our youth pastor made a comment today? She's got to go with, with us to Guatemala next year, right? Uh, on the missions trip. And I'm, my first thought was that'd be really fun. I have a feeling like you'll spend all your time trying to, uh, go visit me in the hospital in Guatemala or something, right? Like I'm not the asset I used to be at 69. Maybe I would be, but I also worry about it cause I'm not the natural volunteer, but there's other things I can still do. I can still fill in pretty well when he's going to be gone. Uh, I got enough things I've done in my decades that I could step in and run the youth group just fine, right? So um, there's places to to serve. There's things to do. Uh, We put care into action. Um, There's a a book came out from a colleague of mine at Seattle Pacific named uh, Jeff Keis. Uh, He wrote a book called Blur, A New Paradigm for Understanding Youth Culture. Uh, one thing the National Study of Youth and Religion found, that was a study done about 15 years ago. Matthew mentioned it in his opening thing uh, a few weeks ago uh, on a Christian Smith's r- research down in North Carolina. National study. Uh, one of the things they found in that study, uh, which, which Keis doesn't really care for for the most part, things things have changed too much in 15 years. So he said one thing they found that he believes is still true, it's vitally important to remember that young people crave the example and intimacy of key adult leaders in their lives. Right? So it doesn't seem that way often, but they, they really do want to have adults, not always their parents. This is why when I mentioned last week that I appreciate Matthew, even though, you know, twenty years ago I didn't know him and he but he was a youth pastor to my future son in law, and I appreciate the influence of what that Matthew had on my family, in terms of the kind of person my son in law is partially shaped by Matthew, right? So he had some uh, you know, key adult leader in their life, even when Matthew was very young in his first job. Uh, Chap Clark. Uh, Chap, uh, you probably don't know that name, but Chap was a longtime uh, professor and uh, uh, associate um, provost at Fuller Seminary. And also, uh, if you're a young life person, he's a legend in young life. Circles and training. Still today, I go to, not this year, but up until this year, I would go to New Young Life's new staff training every year to talk with uh, students in our com- degree completion program. And just the mention of Chap's name, that he was going to be there, people just get in awe. Chap, you know, he's an amazing guy, he's a pastor at Newport Beach Presbyterian now the last couple of years, still doing a lot of youth ministry work and writing. Uh, he had this book called Hurt a years ago that was a real seminal book on uh, what he saw. He took a year of his sabbatical. You know, people who aren't professors always kind of wonder, like, wow, sabbatical must be kind of cool. You, you just get a year off, you know, what do you do, right? But for those who are professors, they know a real sabbatical is about a chance to focus in a different way. Chap took his sabbatical about 20 years ago and spent the whole year hanging out with high school students at his local, the high school in his community in California. And, uh, and then he wrote this book about how he felt like uh, students feel abandoned by adults, the adults have kind of abandoned their own world. Oh, you just live your world. We do our thing, right, as adults. Um, but at the, towards the end of the book, he's talking about what should adults do, and he says communities, including churches, of course, must make sure that each student has a few adult advocates who care for him or her. Now, now when I was, uh, uh, you know, 1981, starting my first full-time job, there, there was a, something that was, we considered to be the, the ratio for youth ministry. You need one adult for every 12 kids. You actually legally needed that to run a camp in Colorado. You had to have that many, uh, uh, at least one adult for every 12 kids. So if you've you know, so you got 24 kids, you could have two adults. Uh, well, we all know that's not enough to run a retreat well, right? Because something happens and uh, you're down to one person, You know, and the other person's off at the hospital with a kid, and you're down to one leader, and it's not good. Um, we, the whole philosophy has changed, and Chap is partially responsible for this. He wrote something a few years ago that said, we now look at, he says, instead of 12 students for every one adult, we look at it as... Uh, one student to every five adults. <laughs> that, think of that. That's a, what a switch. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if you go to the like, uh, youth is going on right now, right? Sun, Sunday morning group. That doesn't mean you go in there and there's like five times the number of adults for every student. Like, you know, five adults sitting around every kid's going, how are you? What are you doing? You know. But what Chap was saying is that you've got five people who intentionally care. They're not all volunteer leaders sometimes what that means is you're the adult who kind of knows a kid from some connection and you kind of highlight it to go i'm gonna make sure that kid knows i care about him so you know you might not know them all that well but you know they're going on the missions trip and you send them a little note and you say hey i'm gonna pray for you while you're on that trip or here's some here's the support money for for you on this trip right um wow that stuff goes a long ways because uh kids understand that kind of advocacy Uh, i know at my church um the, uh, there there's one girl who, uh, after high school, she actually went to Eastern. We don't have any students at my church that come to, to Eastern. Uh, but she came to Eastern, and very quiet, uh, some physical issues, uh, some slight disabilities and things. And uh, I had her in the youth group. When I ran the youth group 10 years ago, uh, I helped start the youth ministry at the church. Then I passed it off to others who were younger and better. But uh, Naomi has become... Uh, I don't spend time with Naomi, but when I see her, when she's back from something or she's at church, always make a point to go talk to Naomi, who hardly ever smiles. She's just that's who, she's kind, of, kind of flat. But like this, this is my advocacy role with her. I'm not leading her in youth group anymore. That's not my, my role. But I, I want to think that I care about her. Now, she's college, getting close to finishing college. Um, but you know, every student in the church needs five adults, chap says of not just the ones working. You don't just need Matthew and volunteers. You need other people that, that, that highlight certain kids and say, hmm, I'm going to put some intentionality into this kid. Now, I put this up a little bit as a joke in a way because I made the comment about the one minute manager. A couple people nodded because they remembered this book, and other people were like, what the heck is that? Uh, but actually, th- th- this was a great quote I was thinking of. I love this quote from this book. It was said, uh, you know, help people uh, reach their full potential, catch them doing something right. I always thought that was the greatest little advice. No wonder they charge so much for this book. I forgot that it was uh, Ken Blanchard, pretty big name back then, too, in, uh, in business stuff. So, uh, you know, and I, I remember when I first read that, I started thinking about that. Like, I remember being on a retreat where saw a, we left, all the kids left a room, you know, to clear out for free time after a meeting. And there was this one girl who went over and picked up a piece of, like a candy wrapper in the corner, put it in the trash. Not her own candy wrapper. It's like wow what junior high or middle school student ever does that not many some do it was like you have to reward that moment to say i saw you pick up that thanks so much for caring you know why'd you do that that was that was great um and if she, she might have done it because she was trying to get hoping the leaders would see her who knows right you don't know because that's part of what identity development is but it doesn't matter it's like you you, you find that moment so sometimes you got to catch them doing something right so you you see uh kids that we when we see kids in worship sometimes kids irritate us um boy i sure know when i was a teenager we sure irritated my church particularly the sunday we were in the back row we discovered song of solomon that was uh that was an interesting moment a lot of giggling going on in the back row of the church it was pretty pretty bad a lot of people look around you know elder coming over to uh talk to us and all that but um you know, there's always things happening where you, where you could see somebody doing something and like, wow, there was something great. Um, I want to appreciate what that person did, right? And of course, uh, the great Matthew McNutt. Uh, now, I told Matthew beforehand, I said, I'm going to quote you today, but I said, I don't know if you've ever said this actually or if it's written anyplace, <laughs> but I do know that I've never met a youth minister who doesn't believe this, right? Be a student of teenagers and their world. Hey, that doesn't seem that hard to do. It's really hard to do, right? Because so many things they do. I, I remember about three years ago when I was in class, I had an intern. Where it was youth uh, adolescent culture class. And we're looking at all the topics. And She goes, you have nothing about TikTok on the schedule. And I go, well, I don't know about TikTok. She goes, everything. She says, TikTok is everything. I'm like, I don't like TikTok. I said, I don't even understand TikTok. You know what? She's right. And now three years later, TikTok's still pretty much everything thing, right? Really, really important thing. Uh, Well, why is that? Like, I remember, I've asked students this, college students to go, you know, I don't understand, it's just a little short videos. What's the big deal, it makes little videos. They go, one of the students said to me, you don't understand the algorithms. I go, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what that word really means exactly, right? Um, So, uh, you know, but these are part of their their world. So it's not just that they're tech-based, they got all these, certain specific things that are are really really big to them right um and it's tempting to just dis- dismiss those things particularly if we encounter them and we think that's the stupidest thing i've ever seen or what is that about how dumb is that or what you know this is what we do as adults i remember sitting with my dad when he was in his early 80s watching tv and uh, a rap group came up on something we were watching right and my dad just disg- disgusted by that right my dad was a wonderful man wonderful christian man his whole life he said I don't get it. It's not even music. I said, Dad, it's not music to you. You don't even think it's music. I said, it's music to a lot of people. I was thinking about this this week because it was the 50-year anniversary of the beginning of hip-hop. Did you catch that this week? Yeah. we learned a lot about that, right? I watched myself listening to a couple of hip-hop bands. I'm like, I still get confused about hip-hop and rap and where they intersect. And I just did it one time and did the thing on trap music, combination, like in a certain context. I'm like, what? You know, I was always learning things from college students. I don't have the college students around me anymore, so it's like, how am I going to learn these things? I'm going to have to work harder to try and figure that out. But, um, you know, it's hard to be a student of what teenagers are into without being critical. But it's, it's really important. So how do you get to see what their world is? You know, part of it, I, I, I meant to put this up on the screen, I forgot. Uh, there's an organization called cpyu.org. My guess is some of you are familiar with me because of uh, Matthew's introduced you to, because there's a great parent thing. Uh, connection. Center for Parent and Youth Understanding. Walt Mueller comes out of he lives in Elizabethtown. He's from Philly guy originally and uh, it's a great resource because he gives a biblical perspective a lot of things in the culture that come out and that's and not always negative. A lot of times it's very positive to say here's something you, you know, worth listening to. I know that uh, sometimes when you en- engage in listening to like, what's, what's going on in music sometimes it's like you know that, that's actually pretty good stuff. I thought that was going to be different. I wouldn't call myself a Swifty, but, but a few, I always thought Taylor Swift was like, uh, you know, just a pop star, right? And then I was listening to a, a song of hers one day, and I'm like, that's really insightful and funny at the same time, what I wish I could be in life, and rarely am. But uh, I thought, I started listening to some more of her songs, and I'm like, okay, she's really good. All right, okay kind of good not just teenage girl stuff now she's been around a while um and of course not all teenagers are swifties they're certain more likely to be into other forms of music and there's you know when i was young when i was their age we had a fewer number of kinds of music to listen to i put on the board one day uh, a couple years ago i said you know right i'm gonna write down all the different kinds of music genres you guys listen to i got to like 37 i'm like that's ridiculous there's all these subgroups of, of all these kinds of music, right? I'm like, okay, this is, what, this is what people listen to, right? So being a student of their world, uh, really, really important. Uh, Matthew can help you do that. Connect, can connect you with ways to try and study. Uh, nothing blows kids away more, by the way, than when they say something to you and, and you respond with the answer, like you know something about that. I, now, this just popped in my head. I haven't seen that show on like the Generation Gap thing that, Kelly is doing, right? It's like a little summer game show, right? Where they have senior citizens and kids, right, answering questions. All I know is that in the ad, they have a moment when the question to the senior citizens, what what rapper did, she goes, Jay-Z. And Kelly is like, how did you know that? You know, because like, how did you know that? You know, so maybe she just studied for the show. But what a good thing if you can be uh, on top of things, you know, what movies, what, what, uh, What TV shows, you know, what's going on? And it it changes very fast. I taught the class, I mentioned adolescent culture, my favorite class to teach over 24 years, uh, partly because it was different every year. Because the culture changes every year. So hard to keep up. You know, so, uh, but really good to be, um, you know, on top of what students' culture is about. What is their world like? All right, so a little bit about approaching a tough topics, because when we get to the tough topics, that's when it's the hardest for us to listen and be empathetic, because this is where our blood starts to boil a little bit. Or if it doesn't do that, we have a lot of theological responses to things. So like, how are we going to answer these things, right? Um, so uh, Jeff Kaisen Blur said this, it's shocking how many youth workers have never asked the teenagers they're serving what books they're reading and what key topics they're wrestling with. Now, a lot of adults go, they don't read books. What do you mean books? Read books? They don't read books. They still read books, I think. Otherwise, the whole issue is about about like, book banning, maybe not such a big deal. But there's books out there, right? So adults are very concerned about books. But what are the kids reading? You know, if I go back to when I was a teenager, if I, if I, list, if I listed the five most influential books in my life, one of them would be one I read Probably a senior in high school to kill a mockingbird i don 't think it was even required in a class I was taking. I read it 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 changed my whole view forever about how I felt about race relations. It just did very influential uh, and that that is you know that 's what happens. kids read things sometimes and they get influenced good and bad, but we should know what uh what are they reading? Uh, not just at school, and again, not to be judgmental, but to find out what's going on, especially the older teenagers, right? Who are, can process things a little differently. Uh, uh, what are the key topics? But he said, you know, uh, Kais is talking about youth ministers here. and He says, I'm just amazed how many have, have, uh, have told me that they don't really know, because they, maybe they're scared to ask. Maybe that's what it is, you know, but he said, they need to do that. Um, last week, I mentioned that in uh, Fuller's FYI group, Uh, In their Sticky Face series, they mentioned 70% of former youth group students admitted having serious questions about faith in high school. Teenagers with doubts who felt the freedom to express their doubts showed greater faith maturity. All right? So that's a big, tough one, because sometimes, sometimes kids have questions of things that you go, inside you're thinking, that is the dumbest thing. How could you even ask that question? And if we respond that way, it's done. We're over, right? Conversation concluded. Um... But teenagers who felt like they could express these things because they're going to grow older. And some things, we're all this way. We have things that we thought about as teenagers that we think very differently as we got to be adults. Um, Sometimes we don't. Sometimes those things stay with us. But teenagers who felt, uh, you know, that adults could hear them uh, showed long-term faith maturity. Kind of cool. Now, uh, tough topics. You might be surprised how often young people experience racial prejudice and racial inequity. Uh, Matthew, made the comment again a a month ago about how, you know, about half of students today are a a mix, racial mix, right? Uh, Very different than a lot of the lives we live, where we work or what we do or our neighborhoods uh, might not reflect that. Uh, I grew up, I was a student when it was forced busing, right? Overnight, we were integrated with a lot of tension, a lot of problems, right? It was forced uh, integration. It was tough. Because um, all of a sudden, my, the school I went to, which was way predominantly white, all of a sudden was about 40% black. Uh, that was a whole new thing to try and experience, right? Completely new, new, new thing going on there. Um, kids today, they're, they're not, they live in this, uh, a multi-ethnic world. These are not shocking things to them. They, this is this is what their life is about because half of them um, are uh, uh, people of color. Um, I know, like uh, in the church, sometimes we're. You know, three years ago was the the summer of uh, after George Floyd and uh, Black Lives Matter, and my gosh, there was so much happening on that, so much uh, tension and family, not just those things, but those in particular in my family became an issue. My younger brother Dwayne. Who's uh, uh, I have three brothers. We're, we're all very close. We get together uh, for a little reunion coming up. We haven't done for a few years. Very tight. A great family we came out of. But my, my brother, Dwayne, he, he posted some things about basically the stupidity of Black Lives Matter. And uh, my three daughters, who were all in contact with him, kind of tore him apart. And he had to start backing off to where he finally just went off of Facebook and has not connected with them the same way. My oldest daughter actually lived with him and his family for a summer when she was in college. Very, very close relationship. But this issue, because of the way he was approaching it, was, was not going to be tolerated by my three daughters, who are all very different. I, during that summer, I remember thinking, I'm I, uh, trying to figure out what to do myself because I thought, you know, no one cares what I think about some of these issues. So I decided on Facebook, I, I put a little note. I said, I'm going to call this my uh, James, uh, James 1 series where uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, right? So I said, I'm going to repost things from people of color I know. Uh, I'm going to repost their post without comment. And these are all people I know, I love and respect colleagues former students things like that my first post was from a student of mine named theo davis who uh moved from maryland to kansas city he's a youth pastor in kansas city at a big group of churches called restore uh, and i posted something from uh, theo and within five minutes a extended family member of mine posted a candace owens video now you know who candace owens is you might you might she's well-spoken, young, black, conservative, very conservative, uh, and posted this video of her. And I had to write to my, uh, kind of a, almost like a a stepsister way to say, I don't think you got the idea of what I'm posting. I wanted to post things from others that I know, I love and respect. I've never met that person. I'm not posting anything from left or right from people I don't know. She pulled it off, unfriended me, haven't talked since. I'm still trying to like, is it still intentional? Did I, have I miss something on this one? That's how intense this issue has been, right? The post from Theo was how, uh, when he moved to Kansas City, because he, he came from a very uh, multi-ethnic part of Maryland between Baltimore and D.C., went to a really great, most multi-ethnic church I've ever visited, Uh, in Gaithersburg, amazing church. And then he took this job, the time to move to another place, he went to Kansas City, Uh, didn't realize how north and south Kansas City, apparently very different places, right? So he said, he said, I have experienced, you know, he says, I don't experience prejudice all that often. He says, I pulled up at a, I had, I went into a a pharmacy. Turns out that where my church is, where I work at, there's not many black people. He says, I I parked, my three uh, kids were in the car. I went inside to get some pharmacist, kind of follow me around the store, call the police. And he said, I had him on a class uh, sharing this, and he said, do you know how it feels to be, have a policeman come up to your car at a pharmacy, have you get out frisk you, with your kids in the car? And I thought, no, I do not. Because I have never experienced that. So uh, that's not his experience every day. In fact, over time, Theo has published these, posted these great things about, wonderful interactions with uh with police and community and things been been some great things in kansas city for him but but that was like uh, i need to hear him on that one right not judge him on it so this is what it comes to teenagers what do they think about these things we have to hear without saying here's what i think about that because that just shuts the door right so uh they 've to be really careful on these things because so many of them have some of these experiences um you know uh, Teens care about things, and now adults, half of us care about things like climate change and gun control, we know, because the, the percentages of, in polls are pretty much mixed, right? Pretty, pretty intense things, uh, politics, LGBTQ issues, all these things. Um, hard not to have very strong opinions as an adult on whatever side, or whatever side. and have done a lot of reading or, or you know, thinking through these things, right, to be pretty thoughtful. Um, but when it comes to teenagers, we want to listen. What do they think about this? What do they What do they think? All right? So, like, uh, I, I don't know. I haven't asked teenagers about this, but what do they think about the Maui, this terrible disaster this week? How long is it going to take for adults to go, well, that's not about climate change. That's about poor forest management or poor response time, right? There's a lot of reasons, right? This terrible thing. The kids are like, people died, got burned. Terrible fire. They care about those things, right? In ways that as adults, we care, but we also, you know, care about the issues involved. It's just very different. So we've got to, we've got to be listening to them. What do, what do they think about these things? Uh, and we can't just respond. We've got to be open. Uh, now, you, I know a few weeks ago, you had a guest speaker, counselor, on this topic, which I asked Matthew about because it, 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 it wasn't recorded, right? And I thought it, it might be that the counselor, David, I think his name was, right? Was, uh, it might be something sensitive enough that I'm not sure you want to record it. And have it on a church website, where because you never know, right? Well, if you're if you're in a ministry, people sometimes get hold of something and they go, "Well, look at this little clip of this guy said." I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you have got to be careful. Um, you know, um, I don't have to be so careful anymore because i retired. You know, so you know, uh, anything I do now, people are like, "Oh, he's retired. He's done. He didn't speak for anybody anymore." So, uh, but my, I'm, I'm guessing that he mentioned this book, uh, which is kind of the seminal work about. Uh, from a guy who, from a Christian perspective, on gender and sexual identity issues. um, Mark uh, Yarhouse, uh, who's the primary writer on this one, Um, he's at Wheaton in Illinois, right? The great Wheaton College, Uh, and has written very thoughtful things about this. And I don't want to portray his quote here as saying that he's like, oh, I'm all in on uh, gender identity issues. He's not that at all. But he's trying to take a Christian approach and says this in the book, a couple of quotes here, each person, no matter their experiences of gender, ought to be able to discover life-giving identity, community, meaning, and purpose in and through the life of faith. Very tough to actually do that. You know, particularly when talking about gender identity. Like, like uh, man, I, it, it's taken a few years to try and figure out what to do about uh, gay issues for me in the country and in the church. But I had, over time at Eastern, I had a number of, of uh, gay students. I had a student come in. My, one day I sit in my office, and this, this guy was a huge guy, was six four, walks into my door, a big strapping guy, and he said, uh, are you Dr. Pearson? I said, yeah. And he goes, do you have a minute? And I, said, I said, not really. I, can we make an appointment? I got class in 30 minutes. I got to get some things together. And he just starts sobbing. He just breaks down sobbing. I'm like, okay, I guess I got time. <laughs> So he sat down. And I thought I'll just have to, you know, tell class we're not quite ready the same way. And uh, and I said, "What's the story?" And he said, "Well, I don't know you, but a friend of mine said he thought you'd be a, a a guy who would listen to me." I thought, "Well, I hope so. I'm glad that my maybe that's the impression I would give. I would give on this." And so he said, "He says uh, I'm a I'm a gay guy from a Pentecostal, very conservative Pentecostal church. Parents want me to go to this school. I wanted to go to a very, you know." public uh, state university we kind of settled on the uh, the christian college that seemed to be more nuanced on some things with people since so i came here and said, i thought i'd be accepted and loved here and i have not been and i, I thought we're not going disc- to we're not going to argue the issue at that point it's like i have to care about the student Right. So, I, I, you know, I met a number of uh, guys like that over the years. I had to try and figure out. But uh, on the transgender issue, I, I only know one person, a former youth minister, who, who's changed gender. And I haven't talked to him since that happened. I, I have very, you know, no experience in that. Um, but I, I know that in churches, uh, I've, I've had youth ministers say it's an issue in their group. They've had things happen, right? They've had students. They've had to try and deal with what do they do? How do they do that in, in love? You know, uh, your house says, Christ embodied the radical theology that each person is made in the image and likeness of God, you know, uh, pretty good starting spot, right? To say, all right, these issues are, are uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if I agree, disagree, if I'm what they do with me, but I have to somehow take uh, a Christ response to how I deal with teenagers who tell me certain things, but very, very hard to do, right? Um, but of course, these issues are big. Um. Back in the 60s, I think he was at uh, Duke University, John Westerhoff, he was a United Methodist um, uh, minister and a a development psychologist. Uh, He wrote a book called Will Our Children Have Faith? Because he was so worried about, you know, will we pass on the faith to the next generation? And... uh, he had this thing. I always like these simple things. I'm a simple guy, I guess. So I like these simple things like the one-minute manager, right? So uh, he had a thing called the styles of faith, like how do kids uh, uh, who grow up in the church, not, of course, obviously people come new into the church who, who are not children. But if you're a child growing up in a church, he said, here's what he thinks is the, the pattern. He says, you know, experienced faith is when you're a little kid, you know, you, you, uh, you experience faith. This is like, you know, uh, like when I would ask college students before Christmas, are you excited to go home for Christmas? Uh, are you going to have a candlelight service at your church for, for Christmas Eve? Yes. They love it. Why? Because they experience that in their little kid. That's part of their experience, of their faith, right? Important things that when you're a little kid, you just go. Two-year-olds don't say to mom uh, and dad, you know, uh, I'm not going today. I'm staying home because I have nothing to do with that place, right? They, go, they experience the faith, right? Pretty cool. Uh, and then affiliative is where you get old enough to become a part. You get to join most teenagers are probably members, aren't they, at this church? A lot of teenagers, probably. Or do you have to be in college to join the church? Yeah, no, of course not. You can be younger, right? Um, how young can you join for anyone? Not, not a set age? I grew up in a church where it was pretty much 7th grade. Like, there was this unofficial thing. Apparently it was in the Bible. Can't join the church until you're 7th grade. Probably corresponded with the 12, 13, bar mitzvah age. You know, young Jewish. I don't know. Um, but we all joined and we were seventh graders. That was kind of the big deal. Uh, so, affiliative, you know. I remember uh, getting baptized in my church and I had to give a little testimony. You know, seventh grade boy testimonies are really something to behold. I have no idea what I said back then. I, you know, who, who knows? But I expressed some uh, statement of faith, right? They accepted me. I became a member. That was good. Um, that's affiliative. And then he said, then you go through questioning or searching faith. But, but as parents, this is what we really don't like. We don't like when our kid goes through searching and questioning faith because we want them to, what, embrace the faith and just move on, become adults who have children who also embrace the faith. But Westerhoff said, if a per- person doesn't go through questioning, searching faith, they never really get to own faith. I think we see this when we have like a national tragedy like 9-11. Right? You have people who grow up, they become, you know, they, they, they're a part of a church. Then when 9-11 happened, how many people were like, where was God? You know, it's like, well, where have you been? You know, it's like, there's tragedies every day in your life around the world, and you've never thought about this till now? Yeah?
1: So, I've been thinking about this a lot. What do you think about the possibility of, instead of experience and affiliative, what if we were to explore with them, let them explore and engage, and then the questioning doesn't happen? Because they've explored and found faith in their own way and own needs think that the questioning hmm. would maybe vanish and then you wouldn't
0: see so much challenges as the probably 18 slash 24 maybe yeah maybe, maybe maybe this is why the a little research about the 70 percent of students who, who had doubts expressed maybe that's what happens like in our families I mean, I, I remember in my family my family was like a real great christian family in my church I didn't express doubts, though, at home. Uh, I didn't do that till college. When I finally went away and uh, started wondering, I I came back partly because I realized that the only people in my life who care about me were from my church. So it was kind of a return to people caring about me. But um, my, my family didn't have an approach to say, like, what's the issue of the day? I think it's partly because parents were so unequipped to talk about things that we're not ready to get blown away, but if we were a little more thoughtful about some things, we'd probably be more engaging to do that. You're not saying to try and bypass it; you're saying that you're kind of going through that at the same time.
1: Well, I think it's, it's, it's an ingredient of what you're saying. Yeah. Ask the question. Ask a rhetorical question. It's a third question, and let them let let them learn through the engagement of questions. Yeah. Technically, how we're supposed to learn anyway. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, the whatever I can't say it. But <laughs> if, we, if we walk through it with them that way, instead of telling them, because I feel like all we do is tell them, believe, 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 believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of letting them engage and have the hard questions at earlier and younger ages, and it's safe to do that instead of just saying,
0: well, that's what the Bible says. Right, right. Does the questioning become less of an issue at eighteen, you know, high school when they really
1: start to see peer pressure or even the in college with hard questions, well hopefully they've started to come through that. Yeah. And and I just wonder if that would take that percentage down a little bit of, of kids questioning their faith but calling back on that firm
0: foundation. Yeah. I had a Sunday school teacher once who came to me and said, uh, he says, would you be opposed if I had a Sunday school class where kids took it as an elective? Because we're going to have homework and everything. I said, yeah, if you can find some kids. A big youth group, you're going to find kids like that, right? So he had this group of really thoughtful kids. And he, took a, he did a thing called the Bethel series that was big uh, years ago, a very in-depth biblical uh, content. And uh, he was basically doing that for ninth graders. And he had one Sunday where he came in and he said, you know, the Trinity does not exist. And the kids are like, what? He's like, not a real thing. He said, you can't find the Bible. And they of they got kind of angry. And then their class was them digging through the Bible trying to find the Trinity. Which, guess what? Hard to find. Except for one verse in John, that's in the King James, that's not good textual sport. So, he, uh, he got these kids really thinking, and then they, when they left Sunday school, they're home all at home. You know, About a week later, I had a potluck dinner at our church, and one of the dads is standing behind me in line, and he says, uh, I don't, I've got to ask you a question. How can you have a Sunday school teacher who doesn't believe in the Trinity? <laughs> I, go, I go, I think he missed the point. He said, well, my daughter, my daughter got in the car so all we could talk about on the way home, arguing about the Trinity. And I go, that's the point. Right, so, it, so I get excited when they're talking about faith issues and faith hard questions outside of church. Yeah.
1: So that's a good thing. Yeah. Because now they're thinking about their faith. They're thinking about it while through it. So, yeah. so So if they're in a faith, debate
0: with themselves outside of church, I think we're doing something Yeah. Right. And it's, it's where service, service projects work well, too. Not just missions, but ongoing service things where kids get involvement with other people and get to try and process, like, why do people have less when well, there's a God who could supply things, thing. Like, there's a lot of questions they start figuring out. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, one more here. Yeah, so given that
1: the, that book is now, what, 60
0: years old? Yeah, that one's go back.
1: So I looked it up. And <laughs> oh, yeah? Answers, yeah, because it said, yeah, will our children have faith? So the answer is that um, we're seeing it, it used to be an 80-20 split between children of Christians having children who are Christians. 80% of faith. That answer to that question, the demographic that question is talking about, it dropped down to two thirds. So now, will our children have faith? Yes and no. Two thirds will say that
0: they Instead, 80%. Used to be 80% uh, prior to that book.
1: And then the big gap, the big chunk that that they're calling is called um, unaffiliated.
0: Yeah, the nuns. Yeah, yeah.
1: So the nuns grew. Like crazy, so they won't call themselves Christians. They won't
0: use the word Christian. But, yeah, yeah. I, I think the evangelical church, by the way, we like to blame the culture for all that and society, but I think we have to share the blame that we have missed some things that that would have helped more than just dismissing things. I mean, I, you know, I, I I heard a I had a friend make a transgender joke at church a couple months ago like a joke, like, you know, like who's listening to this to have someone in their family who's transgender and they're trying to figure out what to do and you just made a joke out of this? It's like, we, we can't do those things, right? So um, I think we sometimes bear responsibility for saying things and responding in ways that aren't helpful but uh, certainly the culture's part of it too but yeah, it's like, yeah, that nuns that nuns thing, is a that's a big deal these days in the research, right? To go, uh, what does that mean? It's like that's slow, slow, becoming Europe, right? Slowly becoming less and less tied to uh, Christian faith. Uh, okay, one more, I got about that, a
1: lot of
0: all a supportive to all Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the guide part is the right word in there too. Not just anti response to everything. It's a guide through these things, right? And, and part of that is to go like, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of the issues that we face nowadays. I'm puzzled about. You know, I mean, like I, I really like the climate change issue. I'm no, I'm no climatologist. I'm no scientist. I got. Natural science friends who know about data a lot better than I do, but I don't understand. I got to depend on other people. But uh, how do you guide through that without just going, like, here's it, this is the answer, or this is yes or no, or, you know, yeah, you're guiding through those things, right? So, um, um, yeah, tough stuff, tough stuff. Um, all right, just a little bit here at the end to be the church. Uh, couple of things they, they, from their earlier research in sticky faith that you've done some things with the church. Involvement in all church worship during high school is more consistently linked with mature faith in both high school and college than any other form of church participation. So I know you have students involved in church worship doing things. Got uh, to increase even more. more. More can be done, right? Involvement, pretty great thing. The more teenagers serve and build relationships with younger children, the more likely it is their faith will stick. Talked about this last week. A lot of kids work at this church, right, with teenagers, which is obviously very helpful, really, really good. High school students, they said in their research, don't feel supported by adults in our congregation. Why is it? You know why? Well, again, maybe not get that attention. So they don't know. I, I had a lot of college students that often would come to college and go, they love their church. And they go, oh, I feel so alone now. I feel like my church just forgot me. I'm done. You know, they've already moved to the next group of kids, younger kids coming up and... Uh, but then once in a while you have these churches that like send care packages, not just grandmas, but care packages from the church. My, my daughter, uh, when she was up at her, she was at a, uh, secular college up in New York and she got a care package from our church, from the youth group and her friends, not Christians, most of them were blown away. They couldn't believe it. Like that's not what they thought church was about. And Alyssa was never forgot that package. You know, that was people caring. I was a you no know, adults with teenagers, but you know when churches do things like that, uh it makes it makes a difference, right? So uh support. Yeah, they don't know how. So here's some ways to do that.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Take some brainstorming to figure out what that might be. Uh, you know, sometimes uh you know, I I remember my church used to take our college pastor and he would actually go visit college students at their campus every spring. And that included people on the East Coast. We were in Colorado. They flew and he'd drive around the East Coast to visit people. Well, huh, kind of expensive, but it paid off. You know, it was pretty good. But how, how do you brainstorm? Mailing things to people, not bad. Amazon, it could be tomorrow.
1: Our church in college had an Adopt-a-Student program, so they would just go ah. the to Adopt-a-Bunch of students, and the one family used to just take us out like once a month and we would go out for lunch on a Sunday. They were just, you know, and we, I mean, they didn't know us from Adam. And it was just like, hey, you're all, our kids. they came to our graduations, they sent us letters, they gave us money for our weddings, like every single one of us, they still are in contact with it now. Both of my, both of the parents that we had there have all passed away now, but they, I mean, up until that point in time, I mean, their children were like, hey, you were on the list of people they wanted us to send a card to, you know, huh? and they passed away.
0: Nice, wow. Yeah. Uh, eating together. Go out to eat. Buy some of the meal. Not bad.
1: Yeah, especially for college students, when you don't have a lot of money, it was amazing. It was like, we looked forward to that. Well,
0: yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. Yep. And you could probably have to go someplace they want to eat.
1: Oh, they, they always asked us. It was never where they wanted. It was always... Oh, really? They're like, you, you went here, tell
0: us. Yeah, you take us someplace, like, yeah. You pick. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. It's a great one. I like it. Um, Okay, one of the most powerful predictors of youth who see faith is very important is participation in the life of... Oh, this comes from Five Cries, 1977. Isn't that interesting? A little overlap. Back then, the saying the same thing. Powerful predictor, uh, participation in the life of congregation. This is where small churches actually have an advantage. I've always kind of been a big church guy ever since I, uh, my first job and on. Um, I've done small church a couple times. One of the things that was kind of cool about small church is kids can do things in the congregation of worship without it being, uh, you know, quality isn't quite as big a deal. It's like they're in there doing stuff is, is important. So it's hard sometimes for big churches to find ways to make this connection. But, uh, but obviously it's really important. Kids see themselves part of the congregation. Um, students identify belonging as just being together. Um, some of these things we've said are, are just that, right? Where do you, are you just together with teenagers? When I left last week, there was a... a like pizza with the pastors in here right So i don't know, often you got it looked like a pretty official it wasn't like one time written thing look at an official thing you had poster that used once in a while i'm sure you do that once in a while right um uh, so th- those kind of things right anything you're doing where people are communicating talking good right anything like that food he's coming free food they charge for the pizza or is that free you'd be there yeah you'd be there for the free food <laughs> okay, it's a long time ago you were in college. Okay. You don't need free food anymore. All right. Um, so, uh, um, a friend of my, Mark Osterrecker wrote this book on Youth Ministry 3.0. It's pretty interesting kind of looking at the history of youth ministry. A lot of people have written on this. He wrote a really short book on this. But I thought it was very interesting. I grew up in Youth Ministry 1.0, which was a lot about proclamation, the driver, evangelism, themes, correction. I remember these huge Youth for Christ rallies. In Denver, thousands of kids, right? Uh, all evangelism kind of directed. And then I became a youth minister in Youth Ministry 2.0, where the issue was like autonomy. The youth group did well on its own. Uh, models and success, uh, positive peer group. That's why a lot of people loved the youth ministry, was a positive group of kids, parents like that. Uh, youth Ministry 3.0, here are the, uh, you know, uh, affinity, contextualization, communion and mission, not driven, but present, in other words, youth ministry is less about program. We were big into programs in my time. I have some of the greatest thematic programs you could ever imagine as a junior high youth pastor. Uh, life-changing, fun, yeah. Communion and presence, right? So community uh, of, uh, of the body. That's belonging. So it's not just about programs. It's about these special things about presence. Um, one of the things that are just a little random thing, identify unique gifts and talents. We're talking about trying to identify with kids in your church. You know, when you see kids do things or something musically, uh, connect how that works for that. That can be done in the church. Can, can, like sometimes we don't have instruments played in the church that kids are really good at. I mean, we've got to find a way to let kids play instruments that they're good at that we don't normally hear you know might be good uh certain kind of talents and things uh i love frederick bigner's quote on vocation is the place where the world's greatest need and the person's greatest joy meet. where you help a kid figure out what are you really good at what's unique to you uh, and uh where's the world need you to make a difference that those things come together because that's a place where church can kind of brew that thing together right so students are going like i've kind of found my purpose in that. I've seen a lot of college students do that, including creating their own ministries down the road. Well, they had to raise funds and things for something they wanted to do because they were good at it, and there was also a need in the world, and they did it from a faith perspective. All right, quick word of prayer. We're done. Hang around for a minute if you want to afterward. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to gather these fine people, this great church. Uh, Help them as they uh, continue to work to connect with kids uh, in their their church to make sure that uh, the faith continues on beyond us. In Jesus' name, amen.